0: What a beautiful song, and uh, what a beautiful crowd we have here tonight. I was just thinking about the man hours uh, represented in this room tonight. Think about the number of hours represented in the time it took for everyone to travel from their respective places, the time in which it took to uh, sing these songs of praise. But look at the beauty we've already received from being together tonight. These songs of praise have lifted my soul And certainly I trust that you have also been edified thereby. And it is now my privilege to preach the Word of God and to draw your attention and mine to something that we've all known about for many, many years, most of us, but it's never, ever going to get old. The instructions that God gave Adam and Eve were not hard to figure out. They were very clear. Of every tree in the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou mayest not eat thereof. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now that's not hard or complex. And Adam and Eve knew exactly what God wanted. And yet Satan, in the form of a serpent, came along with his seductive tactics He did what 1 John chapter 2 describes him as doing even today. He tried to get them to focus on the lust of the eyes. Doesn't it look good? It was a tree that was pleasant to the eyes. The lust of the flesh. It looked like it would taste good. And it would make one wise. It would make me look good. There's the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. 1 John chapter 2 Verses 15 to 17. And you remember that Eve and Adam both partook of that fruit. And now they're expelled from the garden paradise, from the fellowship of God. And now what? What can fix this rupture? You remember that God clothed them with coats coats of skin. And that may have been perhaps the very first animal sacrifice offered for sin. And maybe God was setting the tone right then for the, the need for sacrifice because Hebrews 9 and verse 22 says, Without shedding of blood, there's no remission. You can't get remission of sins without the uh, life of the flesh which is in the blood. And the Bible says that the law of Moses did have some sacrifices. I would invite your attention to Hebrews 10 I want to notice with you the law the Bible says in verse 1 having a notice the word shadow It was only a shadow of something to come in fact it says a shadow of good things to come But not the very image of the things can never With those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect he says look If those sacrifices under the Old Testament could have remitted their sins, they would not have needed to bring them year after year after year after year if those animal sacrifices could have washed their sins away once and for all. In those sacrifices, there is again a remembrance made of sins every year. Why? For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Now I want you to please try to put yourself in the shoes or sandals of someone living under the law of Moses and it's time for you to bring your lamb to the priest for sacrifice. And you participate in the slaying of the animal and watch the blood flowing from from its body and you must be reminded as you see this blood shed, this animal has never done anything to you it's never done anything wrong to anyone. Why does it have to bleed when you're the one that did something wrong? There were some boys on YouTube some months ago now. It's probably been maybe even close to a year now. They thought it would be funny to take this stray dog that they had found and to videotape themselves with their smartphones. And some of the dumbest activity is taken by smartphone cameras, right? These boys took these this dog and they took turns jumping up in the air and landing on him and you could hear him yelp. Then you see them on the video take this dog and body slam him into the ground. It was horrific. And it wasn't on YouTube very long before, understandably, it was yanked. Now these boys were torturing a dog, but the dog survived. And I got to thinking about it and I thought about uh, those individuals under the law of Moses who had to go through the emotional activity of taking an animal that was innocent and watching it bleed because of some sins they'd committed personally. But then it gets worse than that because, my friends, it's not just an animal that we're talking about dying for your sins and for mine. In fact, it is a human being. And what if they had a picture on the Internet of someone taking a human being and body slamming them into the ground and torturing them? It would not be tolerated. And yet you know as well as I do that there was more than a human being hanging on the cross of Calvary there was God in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. John 1.1 1, 1, And the Word became flesh. Remember that. He became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14 So when Jesus was in a fleshly body... He was now living in before mankind. And I want you to notice something about the cross of Christ tonight. As you and I go back there, what do you see when you see Jesus hanging on the cross of Calvary? I want you to see, number one, His sinlessness. Can you see it? This man has done nothing amiss, one of the thieves would say. We're receiving the just due of our we we deserve to be up here on this cross, but this man has done nothing amiss. And you know that's what Hebrews four fifteen affirms as well. He was tempted in all points, like as we are yet, without sin. My Bible tells me in Hebrews chapter seven and verse twenty six that our high priest notice the description given of him in Hebrews seven and verse twenty six. He's holy, harmless undefiled and then this phrase separate from sinners he's never even been in the category of the sinful he was born sinless he remained sinless he lived before man sinlessly in fact in john 8:46 jesus looked at some people and said which of you convicteth me of sin as much as some of those people were out to get jesus don't you know If they could have mentioned even one time when he'd been guilty of something, they would have raised their hand quickly. I'll I'll tell you, I wouldn't ask my family, which of you can convict me of sin? My wife would raise her hand. And she would say that she sinned too in her lifetime. My children would tell you that there have been times when I just sat them down and said, look, Daddy blew it. I didn't act the right way. I didn't give you the right example. I am sorry for this, and please forgive me. I know that I've sinned, and I could never look at anyone and say, which of you could convict me of sin? But Jesus could ask that question and never have anyone say, well, remember the time when, because there wasn't a time when. He never sinned, not even once. Those high priests under the Old Testament, verse 27, Uh, They had to offer up sacrifice first for their own sins and then for the people's. And I want you to please observe that in chapter 9 of Hebrews, look at verse number 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. He wasn't bearing His own sins. He was bearing the sins of others. And Jesus Christ, see Him hanging there please. And notice He has never done anything wrong. This animal has not done anything wrong to the person of the Old Testament system, and yet it's bleeding and dying. This human being, no, this more than a human being, this God in the flesh, the one who is deity in flesh, He lived in such a way as to be sinless, and yet here He is suffering and bleeding and dying. I want you to notice that this sacrifice He offered was so sufficient, it only had to be offered once. Go back to Hebrews 7.27 where we just were and notice this statement that is made here in verse 27. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once. Just once. That's all it took. And if you want to know if the Hebrews writer is fond of making this point by inspiration, notice chapter 9 verse 12. "...neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us." Once was enough. Look at verse 28. "...So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many." It was a single sacrifice... And then in chapter 10, after he's talked about how they had to come year by year continually with these animal sacrifices, notice the contrast. In verse number 11, he's talking about the Old Testament priest. Every priest, notice the verb, standeth, he's standing. And the ETH in the King James signifies a continuous action. He keeps on standing. Why does he have to keep on standing? Daily ministering, offering, oftentimes... The same sacrifice as, which can never take away sins, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat. He's done. It is finished, he cried. He had done all that needed to be done to pay our sin debt. As far as His sacrificial death is concerned, He would rise from the dead on the third day and complete the victory for us, my friends. It was a single sacrifice. In fact, if you don't think that's the emphasis, look at verse 14 of Hebrews 10. For by one offering, He has perfected forever them that are sanctified. You might have a garment, and it has a stain, and you wash it once, but the stain's still visible. So you wash it again, and the stain's not as visible, but it's still there. And you wash it again, and you have to keep trying. And with some stains, you never do completely get rid of it. Friends, here's the beauty of the blood of Christ. Are you stained tonight with the memory of sins for which you are of which you are not proud? I could stand here and tell you I'm not proud of everything that BJ Clark has done in his lifetime. I'm not proud of some things I haven't done that I should have done. Here's the beauty of it. If I obey the gospel plan of salvation as directed in the New Testament, The blood of Christ is so powerful, it will wash my sins away so completely, it will be as if they could never be spotted. There's no remnant, there's no trace. Now there are consequences sometimes that outlive our, go beyond our forgiveness. But uh, my friends, as far as guilt is concerned, the guilt is completely gone. It's gone. I will blot out their sins and their iniquities and remember them no more. Hebrews chapter 10, the Bible says in verse 17. And so it was a single sacrifice. Notice in the next place, as you see him hanging there, think about who should be there. Jesus doesn't deserve to be bleeding on a cross as a criminal. The thieves even understand that. One of them did at least did. He said this man's done nothing amiss. First Peter 3:18 says, "For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, watch this part, the just for the unjust." There's your substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus dying in your place and mine so that we might be saved. You go back to Genesis 22 and you remember Abraham Take your son, your only son Isaac, the only begotten son of promise. You take him into the land of Moriah. Now remember Abraham's situation. He'd waited a long time for this boy. And now this boy has come and this boy has grown sufficiently to be able to carry the wood. And uh, God says, all right, you know the boy you waited so long for? Uh, I want you to kill him. Go up into the land of Moriah and I want you to kill him. Offer him there. Now, a lot of us perhaps would have been quibbling with God saying, "Well, wait a minute. Whoa, slow down. I waited all these years for this boy, and now you want me to kill him? Well, there goes your seed promise. You said he'd be the one through whom the seed promise would be perpetuated so that someday the one would come who would save the whole world. God, what's going to happen to your promises? Abraham never argued that. He never quibbled In fact, Hebrews 11.19 tells me why he didn't. And this is remarkable. He accounted that God must be planning, if Abraham went through and killed him, Abraham concluded God was just going to raise him from the dead and continue to perpetuate his life that way. How many recorded resurrections from the dead do you read about between Genesis 1 and Genesis 22? How many? None. None. Tell me how Abraham could have believed in something that he'd never seen done, that had never been recorded as having been done. He spelled his God with a capital G, and he believed this, if God could make a man out of the dust of the earth, I suppose God could bring a man back from the dust of the earth if he dies long enough to return to the dust of the earth. I I trust God. If God said Isaac's the one, then I don't quibble with God. And you remember, before Abraham could bring down the instrument of death and take Isaac's life, there was a voice that told him to stop, and then a ram caught in a thicket by its horns, and they offered up the ram, notice the language, in the stead of his son. There's your substitute. And Jesus Christ is your substitute and mine. How grateful I am. I want you to notice that I'm grateful for the submissiveness I see at the cross of Calvary. In fact, I see this submission before they ever get Jesus on Calvary's tree. He's demonstrating this submission. Now remember, I ask you to file away the statement, Jesus was the Word who became flesh. Go to Hebrews 5 and notice that this emphasis on the submissive sacrifice of our Lord is spotlighted here. Hebrews 5 and verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, yes, he was in a fleshly body, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. May I say something to you, and I don't get all worked up about this if I hear someone lead this song or hear someone sing this song, because I know the intent of the songwriter was certainly good. And I know that people singing it are certainly thinking of the sacrificial nature of Jesus' death. But there's a phrase in one of our songs we sing that is not really accurate. And I just change it when we sing it to something that is more in tune with what Scripture says. It's that song, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Have no problem with any of that. That matches Scripture, who loved me, gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. But here's the part that I want you to reconsider. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. Would you notice in Hebrews 5.7, he offered up prayers and supplications... And if you go to the last part of the verse, you'll see unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. And you'll notice the language in verse 7 leading that he had strong crying and tears. Unto him that... So here's what I want to do. Go to Matthew 26 with me and notice the language of Scripture. Here is Jesus petitioning the Father. And look, I'm not going to be overly theatrical with this, I hope, but neither do I want to read it like a mechanical robot and miss the point that's really being made by the Bible writer. In Matthew 26, the Bible makes the following very clear. Jesus Christ, the Bible says... In this passage of Scripture, said in verse 38, My soul is exceeding sorrowful. I want you to picture Jesus in a state where there is strong crying and tears going on, and picture some of these words embodied in this supplication being said in the midst of strong crying and tears. My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry you here and watch with me when a little father fell on his face. And here's the supplication that was said with strong crying and tears. Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Jesus, are you willing to sacrifice yourself for the yes, I'll do it. Not as I will, but as thou wilt. I will die for the sins of the world. I do not want to experience separation from my Father, but I will do it. I will do whatever it takes to save the world. I am submissive. I count me as obedient. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And that leads me to the next point. It's a suffering sacrifice. I heard a preacher say, and I think I know what he was trying to drive at, but I really think that maybe there's another way to say it. He said we should never spend any time in our sermons at all on the suffering nature of Jesus Christ leading up to Calvary and during Calvary because Jesus wasn't the only person to ever down a Roman cross and therefore there's no real value to focusing on His suffering. Now I would agree that if that's the only thing you and I were to focus upon, the physical aspects of His suffering, we'd miss the point of the cross and so I don't think we ought to completely focus on physical suffering, but I don't think we ought to throw the baby out with the bathwater either, because let me just ask you to research this with me. See if the Holy Spirit wants you and wants me to give any attention to His suffering. In First Peter chapter 2, what does the Bible say in First Peter 2 and verse 21? For hereunto were you called, because Christ also what? Suffered for us. Now, is that the last time that uh, His suffering is impl- exemplified or amplified? Notice 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ has also once, what's that? Suffered for sins. What about 1 Peter 4.1 just a few verses later? For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. Peter, why are you telling us Christ suffered for us in the flesh? Because you need to know it and you need to contemplate it think about it. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now what did he suffer? You know, the submissive sacrifice that we noticed a moment ago, Luke's account gives us some indication that he suffered before he ever had a nail driven into his body. Dr. Luke, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mentions that as he was in an agony, verse number 44 of Luke 22, as he was in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I know you've heard preachers before this one. Mentioned hematidrosis, which is a rare but well-documented syndrome. McClintock and Strong and their Encyclopedia of Religious Literature even document some more modern cases in their day and time of people that were under such stress and duress that tiny capillaries could burst in the sweat glands, thus mixing blood with sweat and making it possible in extreme circumstances for people to sweat out a sweat that is intermingled with blood. I know that Jesus Christ was under more duress and stress than anyone ever has been bearing the sins of the world upon Him. And I don't have a problem at all believing that He was sweating out a sweat that was mixed with blood. I notice that in John 19, 1, John, the Bible says in John 19, 1, Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Now why doesn't John go into a blow-by-blow description of what a scourging constituted? His readers knew what a scourging was. The New Testament writers didn't have to say, by the way, here's what happens when someone's scourged, because they lived at a time when they were well aware of what happened when someone was scourged. But you and I don't see scourgings going on in our world, around us, in the United States of America. And that's why we preachers will sometimes stop and revisit what a scourging really was. I was a teenage boy in Indiana where my dad was the local preacher, and here came B.P. Black to hold a gospel meeting. Teenage boy, this has been almost 40 years ago now. Almost 40 years ago. I mention it every time I preach on this subject because it stuck with me and I'm hoping that maybe there's a young person here this evening or an older person for that matter who will never let this phrase leave their consciousness so that they will fully appreciate what Christ really did for them. I remember Brother Black talking about them more than likely stripping our Lord of his upper garment and tying his hands above his head to a post I know the movies sometimes depict it differently with him slumped near the ground, but I think that uh, this uh, explanation from Brother Black has some merit to it. You, 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 you hold his hands up, time above his head, his back is taut, it's tight. The soldier steps forward with the whip. The whip historically would have bone and stone attached to it so that when the whip came down across the skin, it would lacerate and bruise simultaneously. And so here is the phrase that I can't get out of my mind. They beat our Lord until his skin was hanging in long ribbons of flesh. And his shoulder blades might have looked like white caps in a sea of blood. With every blow, his flesh is quivering, his muscles are mutilated, and his tissues are torn. Do you see it? I mean, can you see it tonight? Can you, in your eye of faith, look back to the time when the very Son of God in a fleshly body was having His flesh ripped from His ribcage and from His back because of this beating? Can you see it? My friends, I want you to stop and consider that scourging was not the end of His suffering. It was just really... A beginning in many ways. Go to Matthew. I want you to consider the humiliation and the physical pain as well of the slapping and the smiting. In Matthew chapter 26, the Bible tells us very plainly here in verse 67 that they spit in his face. And they were buffeting him, slapping him, and all of the gospel accounts combined will tell you they blindfolded Him and then slapped Him to say, Alright, who did it? Messiah. If you're really the Messiah, it shouldn't be hard to tell us who hit you. Can you see them knocking our Lord around and spitting in His face and mocking? If they did this on YouTube nowadays to a human being, if, if a crowd did this, I guarantee you, it would be going viral, as they say. And everyone would know about it. And it would be commented on, here's the very Son of God who's being tortured by what? The riffraff of society? These are religious leaders. Prophesy unto us, Thou Christ, anointed one. You are... Who is he that smote thee? Matthew 26:68. And go to the next chapter. The Bible says that after he'd scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. What a bloody mess his face must have looked like at that point after having been slapped and beaten and all the fluid loss he'd had both in the sweat mixed with blood and all that he'd lost in the scourging and the lacerations of being punched and slapped and smitten. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus. They're not done with him yet. Oh, we've got to have a little fun with King Jesus. They stripped him and put a scarlet... Well, you're a king, are you? Well, you, let's get your royal apparel out and you can put it on. And we'll bow before you mockingly. Oh, you're a king? We've got got to give you a crown. And so they take a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Give him his kingly scepter, a reed in his right hand. And then hail, king of the Jews. And they spit upon him and then take the reed from him and start hitting him in the head with it. Now what's that going to do to the crown of thorns? Drive it into a scalp and dig into a scalp and cause tremendous bleeding and I think about this, and I think about them spitting in His face and scoffing beneath the cross after they have taken Him and nailed Him to a tree, taken the cylindrical nail, poised it in a place that would have been sufficient to bear His weight, driven it through His flesh and bone to fasten Him to the wood. They've done that to His feet, and now here He hangs, not for 15 minutes, This isn't death by lethal injection. It's not even death by a bullet hitting you in the heart and exploding and causing your instant death. No, it's nothing like that. This is hour after hour after hour after hour after hour after hour hour of torture. Slump down, you'll pay the price. Push yourself back up, you'll pay the price. Try to get you a life giving breath. You're just transferring pain from one part of the body to the other. And you know, I, I, I never used to think about this. And I don't even remember what preacher started me down this road, but I appreciated him making this point. Have you ever gotten sweat in your eyes on a hot summer day? What did you do? You work. And get the sweat out so that it doesn't sting anymore. You take your free hands and you work until you can extricate the sweat. And that would just sting in your eyes. If Jesus has been beaten upon his head, and he has. If he's been sweating out blood. If he's been beaten and had a crown of thorns driven into his scalp. And this blood didn't just instantaneously stop oozing. These wounds were not just instantly healed that He was in a fleshly body. And I want you to picture blood and or sweat or both dripping down His brow into His eyes. When your hands are nailed to a tree and you have that happen to you, you just have to sting. And here is Jesus Christ as He's stinging with this pain sensation. What is also causing Him pain? The people beneath the cross, verse 39 of Matthew 26, or 27, that is, passing by, wagging their heads in an arrogant sort of way and saying, You destroyed, the... oh, you're the same one that was going to destroy the temple and save, or build it in three days. Well, then, why don't you save yourself then? If you're really the Son of God, come down from the cross. Come on. Now, who's doing this? Chief priests, verse 41, mocking Him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others Himself He cannot save. If He be the King of Israel, let Him now come down from the cross and we will believe Him. Now, to see how surreal this is, that people would yell at a man who's dying, I want you to picture the following. I hope you don't have an enemy, but what if you did have one? What do you think would happen to you if you found out your enemy is in ICU. And you go to the local ICU unit and you sneak your way into this room where your enemy is and all of a sudden people can hear you shouting, I hope you're suffering. Die! Die! You deserve every pain you're going through right now. How does it feel? How does it feel? Tell me what would happen to someone that had the audacity to go to a dying man's room and start yelling taunts and insults at him while he's in the midst of dying? What would happen to him? He'd be arrested so fast. These people, the religious leaders of the day, are mocking your Savior in mind. And it makes me want to cry and it makes me want to be angry all at the same time. And yet, what did it make Jesus do? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Luke 23 34. I'm amazed at his love and I'm amazed at what he did for you and for me. My friends, I do not want to ever let the cross get so routine to me that I can't be moved to genuine tears when I think about it. Little boy. In an assembly much like this one. Hearing about all that Jesus went through. I mean, he'd sung the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But now he's hearing, exhibited the love of Christ. And he's thinking about it, and it just he's about eight or nine years old. And he just starts crying. Sincere tears. You've never seen any more sincere tears than this little boy was crying. That Jesus went through that. Well, his mother noticed that some people were starting to turn around to see who was crying. And she thought maybe he was making a scene. So she took her elbow and kind of poked him in the side and said, Oh, don't take it so seriously. And then brags about doing this later. Mama, you pick that baby up and if you need to go out in the lobby... And cry with Him. Or you want to just sit there and cry with Him in the assembly. Just cry right there. Don't rebuke Him for being moved by the story of the cross. Soften your heart. So that you can be moved again. And then there is of course the statement. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And you see Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you and for me. And you know, I want to stop and say something to you here. I know the movie, The Passion of the Christ, it sold, I mean, millions upon millions upon millions and millions of dollars of revenue, both in the theaters and in the DVD sales. And when that movie by Mel Gibson was showing at our local theaters there in South Haven, there was a church in town, It's not a church you can read about in the New Testament because of their doctrine, but there was a church in town that had put up at the exits of the theater, do you want to know how to respond to the suffering of Christ? Then call this number, visit our website, do this, do that. And I thought to myself, even though I wouldn't want to endorse the movie in all of its aspects, if people are thinking about the suffering Christ, shouldn't those of us who have the truth be standing ready to show them how to respond accurately to what the cross of Christ really should mean. And so, I want to show you, as we get ready to give the invitation shortly, how to be saved by what happened there. Because if I leave you with an emotional story of the cross, and you leave saying, wow, I didn't know Jesus suffered so much for me, or I do, but it's been a long time since I've really thought about it, and Friends, there's something valuable about knowing it and letting it lead you to do what's right, and I want to show you the what and the when of salvation as it relates to the blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary's tree. Now, I want you to notice what it is that you and I need, because you and I might be thinking, you know, Adam and Eve what they did and the sin they committed, that's their problem. No, no. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, that's Your problem and mine. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Ecclesiastes 7.20 and 1 Kings 8.46. There is no man that sinneth not. Every single one of us needs this. We need remission of sins. But what is it that can give us remission of sins? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Remission. Notice, Hebrews 9 says, without shedding of blood, no remission. Hebrews 10, 1-4, the blood of bulls and goats can't bring you the remission of sins. Is there any blood that can? Oh yes. Jesus said, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So what is it that can give me remission of sins? The blood of Christ. All right, that raises this question. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Revelation 1.5 says He's loosed us, washed us from our sins in His own blood. Revelation 1.5 I also notice that I feel guilty for my sins and I want my conscience to be purged of that guilt. Is there anything that can purge my conscience? Hebrews 9.14 The blood of Christ can purge your conscience. If I were to stop right here, I wouldn't have a whole lot of disagreement with me from those in the religious world. They would say, we completely agree. If you want remission of sins, if you want your sins washed away, if you want your conscience purged, it's going to have to be through the blood of Jesus Christ. At this point, some of the same people that would agree with everything we have on this chart would suddenly say, "All right, when do you receive the benefits of His cleansing blood? When do you have your sins washed away, your conscience purged, and your sins remitted? When you bow your head and ask Jesus to come into your heart and make Him the Lord of your life, that's when you'll have all of this. Now, If that's true, I ought to be able to find that over here with Scripture, shouldn't I? I'm now going to put up on the screen every passage in the New Testament that shows someone being told to say a prayer, to ask Jesus into their heart in order to be saved, to receive the remission of sins, their sins washed away, and to have their conscience purged by the blood of Christ. I'm now going to show every passage in the New Testament where someone was told to pray to receive these benefits in order to become a Christian for the first time, I'm going to do that now by pressing the button. And there you have it. Friends, mark my words. No, don't. Don't. Check me out. Check me out. Be a noble Berean. Take your Bible and see... Whether the Bible teaches that's... No, I'll show you what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. When does one receive remission of sins? The blood is what gives you remission of sins. But when does the blood do that? The people on Pentecost were now convicted in their hearts that they'd crucified the very Son of God. They say, what shall we do? Acts 2.37 And they were told not to to pray. They were told, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. The blood is what will give it to you, and this is when. I want you to notice this, what can wash away my sins? Saul... Of Tarsus is the answer. Now, I want you to go to a passage that's not on the screen. And I want to show you something that's so important to remember as you talk to your friends or as you consider your own personal salvation. In Acts 9 and verse 11, Ananias, the preacher, has to be told where to go and who to find to preach to. In fact, Acts 9 11, the Lord said to him, to Ananias, Arise. Go into the street, which is called straight. Inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. Watch this. For behold, he prayeth. E-T-H. He's in a constant state of prayer. He's continually praying. You go look for the praying man at the house of Judas. His name is Saul. He's praying. So here comes Ananias. And according to Paul's own rehearsal of this in Acts chapter 22, when Ananias got there, the Bible says that he walked up to him and in verse 16, and now why tarriest thou? Get up. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins calling on the name of the Lord. Now I'm submitting to you tonight that if saying the sinner's prayer to receive the benefits of the cross of Christ Is the way to go about it, Ananias had a perfect opportunity to come to a praying man and say to the praying man, Whoa, just stay right there. Repeat these words after me. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I make you the Lord of my life. And just say the right words. And this prayer will finally be cleansing. He told him to stop his prayer and get up to be baptized. So that his sins could be washed away by what? The blood of Christ. This is what would wash away his sins. This is when. Now notice this statement that is found in 1 Peter 3. We saw this statement about uh, the blood of Christ purging our conscience. Now 1 Peter chapter 3.21 The like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Literally, it's the appeal to God for a good conscience. When someone as a penitent, confessing believer is baptized in water, they are appealing to God for a good conscience by way of the powerful blood of Christ. Last night, the baptism that... We heard about tonight. What a wonderful thing to hear about. This person was not saved by magic water. No. Naaman, you're a leper. I know. What are you going to do about it? I can't do anything about it. There's not a doctor that can cleanse me. There's not anyone that can heal me. I'm powerless. Okay, wait a minute. Your flesh can come again to you by the power of God. That's what can... Make you clean? When will you be made clean by the power of God? When you go wash in Jordan seven times. This is what you will receive when you do what God asks you to do. And Naaman, you want to be clean? Fine. Here's how you do it. The power of God will cleanse you when you go and wash in Jordan seven times. Now you see these words right here. What and when. I'm going to change just those words And watch what happens to this chart. Grace, faith. Grace. This is God's unmerited favor. And Naaman's recognition is if it were not for God's willingness to give me this, I could never have this. It's grace. It's not deserved, it's a gift made available to me by God. All right, Naaman, this is what God will give you. How will God give it to you? When will God give you this gift of cleansing by His power? True or false, Naaman had to go and wash in the Jordan seven times, 2 Kings chapter 5, in order to be cleansed. True or false, Naaman had to dip seven times in the river Jordan to be cleansed. Yes or no? When he did that, did he come up out of the water strutting and crowing and saying, oh, it's a good thing I thought of that. Uh, it's a good thing I figured out that the magic water of the Jordan has properties to cleanse lepers. No, it wasn't the power of the water. It was the power of God. But would the power of God have ever been appropriated to Naaman's body if Naaman had not been willing to do what God asked him to do? That's faith. And so, to close out, I want you to see the chart we've been looking at, but instead of the words what and when, we put grace and faith. Look, the only way you're going to get this is by this. God had to offer it. God doesn't owe you. He doesn't owe me anything. He doesn't owe me a chance to be saved. He doesn't owe me anything, but He's God. And the thing that makes His grace so amazing is that even though I'm a sinner, he is willing to give me all of these things by the power of, not water, but the power of the blood. But when will the blood be appropriated to my sin-stained soul? When as a penitent, confessing believer, I'm willing to do in faith everything that God asked me to do to obey His gospel plan of salvation. Show me a man that will do what God says do, and I'll show you a man that will receive what God has promised him. Now, as we get ready to close out tonight, I want to ask you if you've been back to the cross recently and ask you if you'll take up your cross. And before you grab your songbook, I want to close with this. I was a student at Freed Hardeman in the 1980s. We had a guest speaker come to chapel. I couldn't tell you his name, but I can surely tell you to this day the story that he told us that day. I've always remembered it. Now, at the time he told the story, I wasn't married and I did not have any children. But I still remembered the story. And when I got married and had children, the story meant even more to me. And then, this has meant a lot to me. As I travel around and mention the story in different places, I've met people that will come up and fill me in on even more details. And one of our students actually bought a used Bible somewhere. He said, Brother Clark, I want you to see what fell out of this Bible. It was a newspaper article about the story I'm about to tell you that filled in even more details than I had known before. you probably heard some preacher in some place tell it, maybe this one or another, but it bears repeating. Two boys in a dormitory on a Christian college campus decades ago now when Coke bottles were bottles, thick glass. These boys are just horsing around, firing the Coke bottle down the hall, skipping it, seeing if they can avoid hitting the wall on either side. And these boys take this Coke bottle, and on one particular throw, they fired it down the hall like a missile, and it is, it's clipping along with great pace. And there's a boy down the hall that doesn't have any idea that he's about to open his door and step directly into the path of a missile. That Coke bottle slammed into his head. He crumpled to the ground. They took him to Vanderbilt Hospital. They let him go home later in the day. But that night he started hemorrhaging and he died. Put yourself in the shoes of the boy that threw the Coke bottle. You are now responsible for a human being no longer being on the planet. Your actions killed someone. Whether intentional or not, it is your fault that he's dead. You did it. Now how would you feel if something you did caused someone else to die? This boy is certainly heart sick over it. He never meant to hurt anyone. And so he has to be disciplined and is. And then the time comes, though, when he has given word that the parents of the boy that died would like to have a meeting with you. How do you prepare for that meeting? I would. I thought many times, even then, I thought, how would you walk into the place where this? you took their only child... You took the only child they had, and what did you take with that? I can picture the dad looking at him and saying, Thanks to you, we will never have grandchildren. Thank you. Yes. You took the only chance for grandchildren we had. Thank you very much. How do you sleep at night? We will never see our son. Stand at the front of a church building and wait for his bride to come down the aisle, around the corner, down the aisle so he can get married, and then he can have the grandchildren. We'll never see our son wait for his bride. No, we'll never see him graduate from college. We will, no more Father's Days together, Mother's Day cards or calls, and forget Thanksgiving turkey together, time together at the holidays. You took it all away. I hope you're satisfied. The boy walks into the meeting. The father looks at him with tenderness and cracked emotion in his voice and says, We know that you didn't mean to kill our son. We know that. And we know that you would not have hurt him on purpose for anything in the world. We miss him. We can't get him back. But we know something else. When you became a Christian, your mom and dad, your family, for, for that matter, disowned you because of your decision to become a Christian. And they told you they didn't want to see you anymore. And until you renounced this religion, you were not welcome at their home. Don't come home. So my wife and I have talked about it, and we've prayed about it a lot We came here today to tell you that we'd like to adopt you. want you to be our son. If you want to come home for the holidays, if you want to call me dad or call her mom, that's fine with us. It's up to you. You don't have to. Could you do that? The person that killed your boy? Could you walk up to them and say, I want to adopt you and give you a a life you've never had. Amazing grace. And that's essentially what I see it more clearly now than I did as a college student listening to the story. It tugged at my heart. But the more I think about atonement for you and for me, I think the Father God looks at me and says, yes, you, you did it. Your sins were just as responsible for the death of my only begotten son as anyone else's sins were. Your sins were just as, just as responsible. You put my son on the cross, you made it necessary for him to die. And what do I want to do to you because of what you've done to my son? I want to adopt you, I want you to be my child. I want you to call me Father, and I want you to come live with me someday forevermore, and I will give you everything you ever dreamed of and more. I'd like to tell you I'm that far along in my Christian life. I want to get there. But my friends, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And maybe you're sitting there tonight and you say, well, I didn't kill anybody, but I've sure done some things of which I'm not proud. And I I don't want to leave here feeling guilty anymore. I, I don't want to go out of this building feeling bad for all the things I've done that I know aren't good. I want to leave feeling refreshed and brand new and clean. You can. Yes, you can. You can come down one of these aisles and we'll... If you've never become a Christian, if you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and if you don't, you'll die in your sins, John 8, 24. It's really important that you believe in Him as the Christ. If you'll then repent of your sins as God has commanded all men everywhere to do, Acts 17:30, And the goodness of God ought to lead you to repentance, Romans 2 and verse 4. If you will then confess that you believe Jesus is the Christ... It would be our privilege to see you baptized into Christ, to put on Christ, to rise from a watery grave of baptism, to have the blood of Christ wash your sins away, give you remission of sins, and purge your conscience. You'll leave here tonight with a clear conscience. What you did in the past is in the past. It's forgiven. It's forgotten. It's gone. And now you can go tell others how they can get that same joy. You said, "Oh, well, I remember having that initial feeling of joy that my sins were washed away, but I've done what 2 Peter 2 says. I've gone back into the muck and the mire of sin, and my last state is... I've become entangled again therein. I'm worse off now than I was before. Can God forgive me even though I've crucified Him afresh? Oh, yes. If the people that put Christ on the cross could have themselves given the chance to repent be baptized for the remission of sins, tonight you can leave this place knowing that you can be saved. You need to go back to the cross tonight if you're a wayward child of God. You need to get the cleansing blood once again appropriated to your soul by repenting and praying as Simon the sorcerer did in Acts 8. We love your soul, and we want you to go back to the cross and see Him hanging there. Do you see Him? He's inviting you to come to Him. He bled for you. Will you live for Him? I beg you, come to Him now. As together we stand and sing, won't you please?